Cinderella, funny fella, running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head, and nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. And this is Trav. Welcome again to the Fringeworthy Podcast. This week we're talking about failures in your Fringeworthy game. Sometimes things go bad. Sometimes the dice fall bad or the situation just somehow you totally misunderstand it and things go bad. And when that happens, it can be the end of a campaign. But we're going to try to help you try to avoid that. We're going to try to help you see that there are no bad results. There's only opportunities to make your game even more awesome. We're going to start first talking about what kind of adventures are there that are likely to fail. John, you had some ideas on this. When you overreach and you have assumptions that your players don't share... You'll have an idea for a great game, and your players go, but that's stupid. At that point, it doesn't go much farther. It was a traveler game I ran while I was in the military, and it became an adversarial relationship between me and the players. And that was not fun uh, at all. But it also sounds like you were saying that you designed an adventure that wasn't interesting to the players. Well, actually, in this case, I let the players have too much control on what was going and when I tried to rein them in, they didn't like it one bit. I was running in the Travel Universe, and if you ever looked at the Travel Universe during the 1980s, it was fairly set at what was going on, what was happening. And the players decided that they were going to do whatever they want to because I was letting them do what they want to before that. Well, why did you feel you had to rein them in? Because it was deviating from the timeline that was in the published game system? Then also, I'm a hard science fiction fan, and they were starting to do things that were definitely in the rubber sheet stuff. Oh, space opera more along the lines of that? Space opera? Traveler space opera medium, they were going space opera nuclear weapon option <laughs> on that. So, John, they were heading in the Star Wars direction, I imagine. No, Star Wars would have been okay. No, they were going into the players of the best things in the universe. There's nothing better than they were. Well, that sounds pretty normal to me. Munchkin land. <laughs> yes. No, that's not true in Traveler. In fact, that's very much not true in Traveler that you are the best thing around. <laughs> there are much better things out there than you are. <laughs> so when you started putting these impediments in front of them, it sounds like they started seeing them as you personally attacking them. Yes. You basically were stepping on their fun. Yeah. How can I say this? This was 84. So my years of experience in gaming was about five, six years. Maybe all that was like two years of actual real GMing. So yeah, it was basically your standard novice GM problems. All right. Now looking from the mountaintop that you have now achieved as a GM, looking back at that campaign, what could you have done to save it? First off, really adhere to the Traveler dogma. Because Traveler actually is not a bad game. Yes, it has some interesting problems in, in the original version where you could die in character creation. I, I hated that. But we're talking modern day now. If you decide you want to do a traveler game and these guys started thinking they were the biggest, baddest thing in the universe, how could you then bring the game more into line of what you wanted to play? Because a game is a symphony between you as the conductor and they as the players. It's not just one-sided. So what could you have done now to bring them more in the line to keep the game going so that both sides are satisfied? Well, actually, start out that way. Don't even let... Let's say you didn't. Let's say you didn't do that. If I didn't do that, then we probably would still end up in the same situation. I hate to say that. They were used to Monty Halling when they were playing D&D. And they wanted to Monty Hall in Traveler. Kind of hard to get them off that drug of being a Monty Hall player. 
you're probably more familiar with the term munchkin than Monty Hall. But If you're in a situation where you have players like that, then unless you come to some kind of a meeting of minds with your players, that wouldn't work out. They should be playing in a different world, a different scenario. Yeah. It sounds to me like the best thing you could have done in that situation, you should have just found some way to terminate the adventure and then move them on to a world in which they were more suited. Actually, I found a good way, which was I was discharged in the military. But that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, speaking of failures, I'm not really a game master. I'm more of a player. So I, I come from a, a different angle than, than Bruce and John do for the most part. There was one time where our group had become so disjointed we were just in a rut. We were in a gaming rut. We were starting a new campaign, and I made up this character, and I actually bought backgrounds and stuff to solidify the group into a more organized unit. It failed. We're talking about failure. This was a failure. I tried to organize the group into a corporation where we were a incorporated mercenary group. It was fringeworthy, but the home world was cyberpunk, not IDET. So we were fringeworthy mercenaries. We would stay in cyberpunk most of the time, but we would venture to other worlds from time to time. I tried to create this corporation. I would secure advanced technology from another world. So we were going to be this badass type of mercenary unit with all these advances and stuff. I figured we'd really start becoming high ranks in the cyberpunk society. However, I didn't take into account that trying to strong arm the other players, roping them in and having them work for my character wasn't going to work. It ended badly. It actually uh, split our group for a little while. I got disgusted because I'd spent all this time trying to build this up and nobody wanted to be a part of it. Although they were all kind of saying, yeah, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good idea. But then when it came down to it and I had everything in place, they all said, nah, we don't want to do that. I got really upset. I didn't want to game with them anymore. And we basically had a split for a little while. And it literally split our group up for almost a year before we got back together again as one group. I found out that strong-arming the other players to becoming a cohesive unit didn't work. But at the same time, in a lot of ways, it ultimately did work. Whatever was broken at the time was resolved when we got back together a year later. We didn't game together for a year as one group. We kind of split into two different groups. But when we did get back together as one group again, everything's been great since then. Sometimes you got to bust something apart to get it to work again. I've had to do that with my groups where we've had people just not game with us anymore. And they'll be gaming two hours away on a different night. And then they'll come back to the, the long-standing group and it does work. And just you need time to just take a breather, basically. And unfortunately, something as drastic as what you went through, Blix, you have hurt feelings, but it also gives you time to recenter yourself. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yep. Yeah, to recenter yourself, and then you come back with that new perspective, and hopefully what you saw other people were going through. I would suppose that this would be where experience ended up being a good teacher. may not have been a good experience, but it, it taught everybody concerned a certain lesson. Yeah, I think what happened was it got to a point where we were all gaming, and we all, you know, the, the expression, uh, nothing breeds contempt like familiarity. Oh, yeah. We, we had hit that point, and I think we couldn't really begin to appreciate each other in the gaming sense until we broke and we were apart and we, we had time to like reflect and say, you know what, we actually do like gaming together. We found what we liked about gaming together, and we all got back together again, and it was cool. Just to be clear, we were all still friends. We all still got along. We just didn't game together that much. You don't yeah. appreciate what you got till it's gone, right? Right, exactly. Okay, well, let's talk about a different kind of failure. Let's say, for example, you had a team, they get out into the middle of an adventure, and they get to a certain point, and they say, man, if we just had a shortwave radio or a, a sonar ground detector or something like that, and you don't have it, and you don't have a techie in the party. And it seems like the whole adventure at that point is hinging on you having that piece of equipment. Sometimes I've seen adventures, they got to a certain point and they just went, ah, we, we can't do it. We don't have what we need. We don't have the equipment we need. And we can't go back because it's too far or this is going to happen in one day and we can't do it and come back. The solution I came up with, at the beginning of every game, I gave them all a token. And I said, 
This is your equipment token. Every player has one, and when you get into a situation where your character really wants something and you didn't write it down in your character sheet and you didn't requisition it or something, you can say, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you about that. I had that in the trunk or in my backpack, and I've been carrying that all along all the time. That has saved our game sessions more than once. Right, yeah, because... Because they're the heroes of the story, you know. They're supposed to not fail because they forgot to bring some piece of equipment. There's nothing awesome about that. I forget what game it was that introduced it, but we have played with drama dice or drama points or whatever, hero points or whatever you want to call them. We operate with those on a regular basis no matter what game we're playing. If it doesn't have it, we put them in. You can do what's called a scene change. So at any time, you can play a card and say, like what you said, Bruce, or you could say anything at all. You know, somebody forgets to do something. You could say, I'm going to play a scene change. He remembered to do that. There's a, a D20 game adventure, and it's pulp, and they have something called dramatic editing, and you have these inspiration points, and you can say, well, okay, you said I had a backpack, but I'm going to spend an inspiration point because you did not say there was not rope in the backpack. I'm blowing an inspiration point. I have rope, we can now climb out the window. Yes, I get what you mean by that. That is a good idea, because everybody is just sitting there, like players and characters going, okay, what do we do now? The moment I'm trying to get to is that moment in The Princess Bride, where they're all staying around saying, we got to get the princess out, but we can't do it. They finally say, well, all we have is a wheelbarrow and an apocalypse cloak or a plague cloak. And he's yeah. like, well, why didn't you tell me about that? And suddenly it's on. <laughs> yeah, Miracle Max said I had this cloak here. It fit me so I could have it, yeah. <laughs> Some game, Trail of Cthulhu, there's actually a stat for that very purpose. It uses gumshoe rules, and you you can burn a point of that stat, and you got whatever it is you, you needed at that point. You can look at it from the other point of view, too, Bruce, that, okay, if you as a GM design a game that they need a widget, and you didn't check their character sheets to make sure they had a widget, or they didn't, couldn't get the widget because they didn't go to the, see the wizard pro- and talk to him properly, that's maybe more of a uh, design issue than it is a player failure issue. <laughs> it absolutely could be, John, and I agree with you. If you know at a certain point they're going to need the red widget instead of the green widget, then you jolly well better have given them an opportunity to get that red widget. A lot of times in my adventures, they go on wild, crazy diversions, and they decide, well, I'm going to go do this, and we think this is where it is, and I'm like... Okay, <laughs> we, we go off to where it is, and I'm like, you know, says, okay, how do I pull the plot over there so that they can keep moving along? And then when they get there, they're like, yeah, but we need something to do this, and, and that's when we get to use things like that. In our most recent game, they wanted to do this huge sneaking around inside of a, an enemy installation and, and try to find out all kinds of information. And they're like, um, how are we going to do this? I don't know how we're going to do this. There was a lot of ways they could have done it, but one of the characters talked to me beforehand, and he said, you know, we're in the middle campaign, so there should be some high-tech devices that are available for player characters that are more than just what you'd expect out of the 21st century. I said, yeah, what do you have in mind? And he said, well, I just watched that movie G.I. Joe, and they had that camouflage suit. Can I have that? And I said, yes, you can. And then all of a sudden, this guy gets to whip out <laughs> the camouflage suit and say, hey, why don't we use this? You didn't tell us you had that. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was the player thinking ahead, saying, I think I'll need this at some point. Let me pack that away. But he could have used a plot point, and it would have been just as legitimate. Yeah. Plus, we we got to remember, you know, I mean, this is a hobby. You know, we play this as a game. It's fun and everything. No one has time to sit around for eight or ten hours to think of a story and all the ramifications of it. You know, you're not writing modules before you get together and play. The game master needs to be cut a little slack. The players need to be cut a little slack. And that's where these points come in. Or That's where they come in because, you know, we don't have the time it would take to think everything through to every little bit that helps do the rewrite. Writers, they take time to write their stories. They can go back and do rewrites and they have editors other people looking at this, and there's, before that story is released, they have time to go through it. We're telling stories on the fly, so we need to have like editor points that are just that are there to fix problems that we run into along the way. And much along what you were saying, John, about 
how these things are bad design. This was a idea that I used primarily in Bureau 13, but it could easily be used in Fernsley instead. And that was, if you have an objective, so you're trying to reach or something you're trying to do, there should be at least three ways of getting to that particular spot. So if they do for one reason or another, they shoot the guy they need to talk to, the piece of paper goes up in a thermite explosion, then they have another way that they can go. There's something else that they've been introduced along the way to say, well, wait a second, we haven't looked over there. We haven't run down this one clue that we ran into. Maybe this will help instead. By setting these things up, these backup paths, so to speak, these interconnections, so that you can kind of go around these kinds of death points, you can actually continue to succeed. And it can be awesome in the sense that it can introduce a whole level of complexity to the adventure. The players are like, wow, you really made this intricate. This guy is involved in this? We never suspected that. And the players start saying, well, okay, you know, maybe we don't have to just follow this linearly. Maybe we can go and try to do an end run around the bad guy when they finally do get to the bad guy. It opens up to me a lot of options for uh, the players to see themselves not as under the plot hammer, but rather seeing that there are a lot of opportunities for them to follow uh, of their own choosing. Oh, no, the last thing you do not want to do as a game master is railroad your players, because that's another thing that will break up a group. I hate to say that. That almost happened to me 10 years ago. So, yeah, making sure that there are other options and giving the players uh, latitude to be able to do different options to achieve the goal is always one of the prime things of being a game master. I just recently got done playing a four-part game, which should have been a two-part game, because the GM did let us do what we wanted, and we didn't follow all the clues. And why was that bad? This actually is my indie night group, where we try to do at least one or two or three different games a month on Thursday nights. I almost got lynched one time when they said, well, how are we supposed to figure that out? And I said, it was intuitively obvious. To you. Yeah, to to you. Oh, yes. <laughs> talking down to your players, too. Oh, that's another... oh yeah, yeah. That's... But we're not well, talking hey. about bad GMing here. We're, 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 we're talking about what to do once the failure happens. Let's look at it this way, though. You know, I mean, of course, with everything in life, there's, you know, there's moderation. You know, you can be a bad DM and let your players run all over you. You can be a bad DM and, you know, completely put your players under your thumb. As the game master, you need to have control where things are going because ultimately it's your adventure and the players rely on you to keep, you know, some kind of consistency and keep the ball rolling in, you know, in a certain direction. Especially if you have some kind of time constraint like they did. Right. You're telling the story. So the story needs to be yours. So they need to follow your story. But at the same time, you have to remember that everybody at the table, including you, is there for fun. They're all participants, and nobody wants to be told how to have fun. So you also need to include them, which is where allowing players to do things that you wouldn't normally allow them to do, if you know it's going to be fun and it's not going to derail your adventure, you let them go. But if you know it's going to derail your adventure, of course you have to, you have to, you have to quash it somehow. You can let them do whatever crazy thing it is that they do and blah, blah, blah. And then you say, okay, you did that. And it really doesn't have much of an effect on things. Or you can say, I would let you do that, but you can't because if you do, or or you could say, you know, do you really want to do that? Because if you do that, you realize that, you know, the consequences could be dire. And once you give them that warning, if they just go ahead and do it anyway, well, then it's on them. And if the game gets derailed, well, it's their fault. But the point of the matter is, is I'm just trying to say that, you know, you need to let the players have fun, too. You can't put your thumb on them and make them do everything you want them to do in a scripted action because nobody wants to play then. But at the same time, you need to keep some control because they're counting on you to keep the story going forward. Right. I have very cautious players. They tend to, to become passive. I don't have a plot hammer. I have a plot C4 demo pack. so what will usually happen is is that they'll go along and they'll say oh gee i don't think we want to do that and i'm like oh really okay and then 
the NPC that I'm carrying suddenly hurls a demo packet uh, off to the side, and there's a huge explosion, and then there's chaos and all kinds of stuff going on, and they're running around saying, why did you do that? I said, well, you said you didn't, you didn't want to be in this situation anymore. Right. But that works for your group, then, is what you're saying. Well, they, they kind of don't like it, but on the other hand, some of the players do like it. I did it a couple of times. Most of the time, I just kind of go, you see the player beginning to fiddle with this pack in his backpack. It's gotten smaller as technology has gotten better, but I think you know what it is. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we really ought to get going, guys. (laughs) I have found that the the, the Thursday Night Game is a great training for convention gaming because you really have to fit a game into three and a half hours. We don't get the luxury of a four or five hour game. You got three and a half hours to get a game in. That's convention time. And also, John, you're at a one-shot game. You don't have, well, we can carry this plot on to next week or two weeks from now when the game comes back. Yeah, right. Have that three hours, and you may not see these people again for another year. I just ran a D20 game at MarsCon, and I'm not going to see the three people that were in the game again until next March. So I had to have a finite game. Yeah. Well, this, this is our Thursday night game, but it's, it's indie game, and yeah, and we do have a core group of people that show up all the time, but... Uh, but for the most part, we try to run a different game every night. Like like tomorrow night, we're running Weird West uh, using Universalis. So it's a game where there's no GM, which is going to be interesting to see how that goes. Hmm. When you're doing a con game, one of the big bonuses that you have is the fact is that you don't have to worry about character longevity. Nope. You can actually have characters take all kinds of incredible risks and and do sometimes some really amazing things. Uh, that's one of the biggest problems I have with players at conventions is I, they, they usually get too timid because they're, you know, they're uncertain. They haven't played the game before and they, and they don't want their character to die. And I'm like, no, no, don't worry about that. Okay. I promise you that if your character dies, it's not going to be, you know, someone's sniping them off the top of a rooftop and they're just going to be falling down after licking an ice cream cone. You're going to go big. And, and you need to make that kind of a promise to your players that if they die or if there's some really bad thing happen, it, it's going to be memorable. There'll be Valkyries running down from the heavens to carry them off. That's right. But doggone it, there better be. It's like my Saturday GM, Eric, says, if you're going to go down in flames, hit something big. Yep. That's right. <laughs> hit, take something out when yep, you do there that. You <laughs> yes, absolutely. And that really can turn uh, a failure in some ways into a success. Because you can radically change the game by doing that. It's usually when people are too conservative in these kinds of situations, I think, where they usually find themselves with limited options. And it doesn't mean that necessarily they are dead, because a lot of times just dropping them off screen and you hear, you know, this is okay, I'll draw their attention. And they, 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 they go off screen and you hear screams and shooting and, and, and stuff like that. And you don't see them for a while. You now got your out. You can now move forward. uh, That that person goes and gets himself a a drink or uh, goes to the bathroom and stuff. And then then maybe later on, either shows up with something that happened that changed everything for his character that he managed to survive. Or he can come up and bring in a new character. And that could be just as as fun for him because it's now different and is integrated into a plot that is going forward and is being successful. When you run a uh, convention game... You do have to be careful when you kill off a character. If you kill them off too soon, then you have a person sitting there going, well, what am I going to do now? Yeah, I paid four bucks for this session. You killed me off in the first five minutes. You suck. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to kill someone off, you got to kill them off in the last hour. That's when they can sit back and then go, oh, that was that was a one hell of a ride. I can sit and watch what happens. And if you're at a convention and you kill off a character, you got to kill him off really good. He's got to go out in a blaze of glory because yep. those people come – to have a good time and if you're going to kill somebody you got to really do it up i mean like blow them up with a nuke or have them go out set on fire you know killing some guys they're stabbing him to death as they burn to death themselves oh it's in the bang brought a friend of mine to a gaming convention it was a battletech game and within the first five minutes he got the mech's head taken out with auto cannon 20 and just he sat there for the rest of the con he never got into gaming again and that was like a bad experience for him because it was like well this can happen the first five minutes what fun is this and so yeah i understand that i mean when you're at a con game you want them to be in it as much as possible obviously if something bad happens it happens but trying to get them going as far as possible and if they do die they feel like they've done something 
Yeah, actually, we need to do a show on on con gaming because that's its own beast yeah, altogether. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm actually doing three right. con three TriTech con games at the upcoming Dragonflight here in Seattle. Uh, we probably should cover that. <laughs> Let's move on to another idea, which is where the game system fails to let you do something or have the effect you expect because it doesn't model it. When I did, they're all dead. Uh, adventures where they went through into a world that was like you know some of the more recent zombie films where they're reanimated dead corpses they're like well okay i'm playing d20 modern uh i'm shooting at these people how do i shoot them in the head there's a mechanic for that but it's not simple well actually it was very simple i said look i know it's a person but when you fire at the person you are firing at some unknown part of the body now let's look at what you're really trying to hit, and that is the brain. How big is the brain? What does that work in the D20 system? I said, that's a tiny object. And so that's like a minus six, I think, to hit. Yeah, that's your best bet, Bruce, is to, yeah. because in my knowledge of D20, and Bruce, you've seen the number of PDFs I have for D20 when we met on my, <laughs> my book. It was scary. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm sure that D20, some third-party book or pdf has hit location charts they do but in the straight d20 modern or dnd no i have not seen any so that's a gm fiat there to ju- to do like you did as far right. as well object size okay you have this type of minus well what i did what oh, yeah so what i did was i said okay you fire to hit them all right and unless uh but you, this is the target number you're trying to hit but the real target number you're trying to hit is six higher so if you hit that number, you hit them in some random part of their body, which knocks them down maybe or flicks their arm around, but they don't really stop. But if you hit this other number, then you actually shot them in the brain and they go down. And we had, you know, they were like firing and bullets were flying and all of a sudden one of them goes down and they're like, whoa, none of these other zombies are being affected. That guy went down. What happened? And I got to say, well, it looks like he took a a bullet to the brain. They're like, oh, that's right. And then they said, okay, can we aim for the brain? And I said, no, you can't because this is D20 modern. But if you roll really well, we're going to say you hit it in the brain. So keep uh, rolling, boys. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't like that also, at all. Uh, well, did you also do, Bruce, like, um, yeah, let's say you hit in the brain. Did you do damage or was it just GM fiat? If you made the roll, they dropped. They were essentially minions, yeah. They got hit in the brain, they dropped. Oh, mook rules, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. That's, that's the only way you can handle zombies. Yeah, yeah, you can't sit there and make them as a character with all that. It's just they're they're a dime a dozen. Right. Just no, I, what I did was I used the amount of damage they were dishing to the bodies to model other effects, like having them get knocked down, having them get spun around. You hit them with like half their hit points, then I would say they got knocked down. They'd have to stand back up. That would lose them a move action. But the point was that the game system didn't let me do what I wanted to do. So I had to think outside the game system. And so what I'm really proposing here is that sometimes that happens and you should feel free to come up with a metric, you know, uh, uh, something that'll work for you to, to get around it, to make the, the, the game flow the way the players are expecting it to flow, even if the game system doesn't support it. Unless, of course, you know, you can change to another game system. Because the original TriTech system would easily have been able to handle this because you were able to pick the six by six point on the head that you uh, want yeah. to shoot. And we had people who had such high scores and laser sights and all kinds of things like that. They were able to put it between the eyes every time, you know, or at least most of the time. Once they knew where they needed to aim, they would do that. But that system supported that. But D20 didn't, so I had to come up with another method. It also said, hey, okay, we need to take really good, careful shots. So what does that mean? Okay, that means that there's some, there's some things in the game systems where uh, you can take careful aim. Uh, in the Savage Worlds, there's feats for taking careful aim that'll give you bonuses to hit so you can still do that as well rather than saying okay i'm gonna go and fire an automatic weapon and i'm aiming for the the square that they're in that's not a good idea when you're up against zombies so you might want to go to the single shot where you get all those bonuses being added in by the way i assumed that they critted they they hit them in the brain that made the lucky Mm -hmm. shot they were going for 
it had worked out well, by the way. I want you to understand that we ran these at conventions, the cons, and it worked fine. It wasn't very long before they realized that, and they're like, okay, we're aiming at it. I say, okay, yeah, you shot him through and blew his teeth out, or you're trying to hit him in the head, but he's moving up on you, and it's hard to just stand there and shoot when you're under the gun like that, or under the claw and the bite and the, and the snarl. And so they're like, okay, okay. So it, it worked out. There's a lot of times where you'll run into a situation where the game system doesn't seem to support what you're trying to do. I got another example of that. Our group was playing Feng Shui for a little while. Or Feng Shui. Feng Shui, oh my god, that's my new Sunday game. I love that. Yep. Now, I love the game. I love the system. It's fun. It's very fun. But our group require more buildability. Crunchiness. We require more crunchiness for our characters. So we played it for a little while, but we had to abandon it. As much as it was, it was fun, after a while, it just kind of played out because we couldn't do enough with our characters. There wasn't enough buildability for the characters. Now, mind you, we, we come from you know, the French-worthy core Time Lords. We, we've played those games, and we actually have enjoyed those. And these are games with, you know, just like incredible amounts of character development, as John put it, crunchiness. So for our group, a game like Feng Shui, Feng Shui, it failed our expectations. Even though at first we thought it was really fun and we had a good time with it, it just had no staying power. Same thing with 7C. We loved 7C for about three months. And then it just kind of played out. So, you know, it depends on your group. You know, some groups are cool with that and some groups just are not. They need more or they, or they need less. You know, I can imagine there are probably some groups out there who have played a, a game like Time Lords or Fringeworthy and they're like, I, I can't take this. It's, it's just, it's too much. They want something simpler. They want Feng Shui. Oh, yeah, you have to tailor the game system to your players. Now, if you want a rules-intensive system and you've got a bunch of number crunchers and rules lawyers, you've got a perfect match. But if you got people who are more into story development and character development and they're mired down in a very rules-intensive system, and I'm not bad-mouthing any systems that are like that. Hero. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah, I was going to say champions. If you've got a bunch of story and development-type people and you put them in a Champions game, oh, you're looking at a very short campaign. It's character-player communication. It comes back to that again. It's a rapport that you build with your players as a game master. And, and you know what's amazing is that groups change over time. Like Our group back in our, our days when we were playing those really heavy games would have scoffed at Savage Worlds. And we're having a great time with Savage Worlds now because... Well, you grow and mature and you change as gamers. I mean, that's right. just experience hits but it, it's funny how failure can come at any point you know to, to bring this back to the subject matter you know failure can come at any point it can be the system it can be the players it can be that time with the system and the players you know you can have the same players five years later love that system when before it would have tanked every system does something differently we were doing a, a Mystery Man game from the Guilty Pleasure movie, Mystery Men. And we used three different systems for that game. For real Mystery Men, we actually used Savage Worlds. But we purposely downgrade the powers of the supers for that. For the A-list, we've been using uh, Truth and Justice, which is another totally different system. It gives you a bit more superhero four-color system than Savage Worlds does. And then we, this last thing we did, we actually used Seven Leagues. And I found that after playing all these various superhero games, I realized that the same character I was I was playing would be far more powerful in Savage Worlds than he would be in, say, Truth and Justice. So it's, it's this amazing little trade-off in what game systems can and can't do. Uh, but as you said, as we pointed out with Seven Leagues, your problem with Seven Leagues is that it isn't as crunchy as other games. Uh, there's some heroes we have a hard time doing. Uh, like, we, we have a hard time doing uh, Iron Man because... He's basically his suit, and the system doesn't do suits of armor. It does people. No game system is perfect. You're going to have either an omission 
or the system itself due to, let's say, the, the setting doesn't come into play mm-hmm. for, like you said, power suits for a superhero game. It's all internal power. Well, then you that's something else that, like Bruce did with the, the headshots, you're going to have to come yep. with that up on the fly, and it's trial and error. You're going to—you may— realize oh boy this rule doesn't work and then you got to sit there and try to juggle and try to find something quick often in the middle of a game session and it's just gm fiat at the time you got to think on your feet like i said i've been game mastering now for 30 years on and off and just you learn to tap dance real well Yeah, if I was playing a Left 4 Dead type game where they were just infected, they weren't zombies, then I wouldn't have had that problem. They just could have just you know mowed them down. What reason why they fail is that you're not playing it right. Uh, one of the things that we I've run into in Savage Worlds is that people assume because because the way other games do things, they have certain skills, they assume that the skills work the exact same way in Savage Worlds when in fact they don't. Like, like investigation. Investigation is primarily used for working on computers and going to the library. It's not meant to actually investigate a crime scene. For that, you use notice. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. The way we play Savage Worlds, we have this mantra, what would Indy do? You know, instead of what yeah. would Jesus do, it's what would Indy do? And that's how we run our Savage Worlds games. We base it off of Indiana Jones, and, and, and it's we're playing in an Indiana Jones movie. And if yeah. you do that, you can play Savage Worlds. And that's what makes it so much fun. Seriously, it's a really fun system. I'm really happy that Fringeworthy is going Savage Worlds because it has been so crunchy and so heavy. And this will give it some levity, but you can still keep you know, the science fiction aspect to it. And I think the Savage Worlds franchise is lacking the fringe-worthy concept. I think once it's added, it's 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 going to be awesome. There's a World War One, I, I believe, in a Vietnam era game for Savage Worlds, so it, it does do dark and nasty. I think fringe-worthy will be the pivotal project that will tie a lot of this stuff together, and you can use all those books together because fringe-worthy just has this adventure aspect to it. Savage Worlds has this adventure aspect to it. You know, it's just adventure is at its core. I just I just see it as a perfect marriage. Building up your players' expectations unrealistically and then having them fall when they realize the game isn't as good as you said it was going to be. I mean, that is another failure. If you're like like I am, where you run indie games or you run one-shots, sometimes your your build-up is, is bigger than what you deliver. You have to learn really to gauge how you sell your game to the players. That can easily you know kill a game when people thought they could be getting you know Star Wars when they get Bell Beyond the Planets. You don't want to generate some image that you can't deliver. Okay, what if the guy, if the character dies? You got some person, they've got their character, could be a short-term, long-term character, and it dies. The character, the, he or she dies. So what do you do then? You know, we, we want to make the character, uh, the player, feel good and continue to want to play the game. So what do we do for this person? My first four D&D characters died with in their first adventure every time, but I kept coming back. It's more of a player thing than a GM thing. Uh, there's not much as a GM can do than not do the little happy dance when the character dies. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Sucks yeah. to be you. And don't put your hand up me. I'll do the L sign at them. You go, ah, loser. So you respect the effort the player made. But also, you know, right. don't kill them too easily. I, I mean, I hate to say this. Sometimes... This is where making hidden rolls is de rigor. You, you, know, you don't want the player to see what you're rolling because you can roll something and you realize if I roll this, he's dead. Oh, I missed! Because GMs can't cheat. That's, that's impossible. GMs can't cheat because they're running the world. So whatever you say happens. So don't worry if you're having to roll a critical hit on a player. You, if you don't want him to die or you don't want to hit him, you didn't hit him. But some people believe that you should just follow the rules and just you know, let the dice fall where they may. And, and, and some of those people would be very incensed to find out that you fudged the dice one toward them or away from them. Bruce, I'm going to go on record. Yeah. Damn me if you will. I'm going to go on record and say those DMs are wrong. Okay. I, I firmly, 100%, and I will, I will argue this to my, to, the, to, the, to my death, that game masters should never reveal their roles to players. I totally believe that the game master controls the situation. His role should be 
completely invisible to the players. You know, if he wants to change something, it's his right. He's the storyteller. He's the arbitrator. To have everything out in the open like that, I, I don't think it's a good gaming practice. We've tried it both ways. It's not desirable. It's better just let the DM run things the way they are because dice can screw you over. And, that, and that's just pure and simple. Well, and it's, uh, yeah, and that's it's, why we're talking about failure. Well, we are talking about failure. You know, right. you, you can let the dice fail you, or as a GM, you can take control of that, you know, and you can not let the dice fail a character. You know, failure is, is ultimately up to the game master. He, he controls the finality of the failure. So if he has final say on, on everything and he has invisible roles, failures that are undesirable or, or unhinged the adventure are under his control that way. So he can advert, you know, an ultimate failure if he so chooses. You want to weigh in on this, Trav? Well, the, the, there's one ultimate failure in a campaign that just it happens from time to time, which is the TPK, the total card <laughs> kill. Now, right. this be due to just bad dice rolls all around, which we have a running joke in my group that Bob, the god of optional rules, was not smiling on us that day. And I have been a part of a TPK as a player. I was the last halfling standing. And but nobody could tell, right? Oh, no, no. Well, yeah. It, the, well, no, the bodies they, were stacked up higher than you exactly. were. Exactly. That orc. It saw, I mean, there was a very little middle finger as that great axe oh, came uh, down, but I, that was my last <laughs> act of defiance, darn it. Um, but TPKs, that is the ultimate failure of a campaign. And it could be because the GM may have given too strong opposition or the players did something patently stupid. And just it, it and, pl- and players and ga- GMs are both at fault at this. I mean, nobody is perfect, obviously. And just with a TPK, that, that, that is the sign of a campaign failure, just for one side or the other. In order to keep things going, I mean, you're not just keeping an adventure going by, you know, you have a failure in the middle of a campaign. You also are trying to keep a campaign going. And let's say you have a TPK. Let's say it's a fringe-worthy game and everybody gets wiped out on a world. Okay. Well, you have other people back at IDEA. You can still keep that campaign going. You make new characters and going... Okay, we found we need to find out why this team didn't come back. We Go gotta out. make and we gotta make whoever killed our buddies pay. Well, the whole thing is let's say and and this is a good way to change up your campaign to to inject some uh, new life into it. Let's say you were a first contact team and all of a sudden you're dead. All all six or eight of you. Back at I dead, they're going okay. We need to find out now what's going on. Now you're going into an investigative mode. And then you find out, let's say, fringe pirates took out your guys. Okay, you're now a fringe police. Or worse yet, you stopped on on a Meller world. Okay, now it's a Meller Hunter campaign. That ultimate failure can bring about new life in a campaign, which all of a sudden you're off and running. Your, Your guys, you know, your players are all pumped up because they're looking and they are playing off that emotional investment that they put into making those characters that got wiped out either due to bad dice rolls or the GM, you know, bringing in too large opposition. Thank you very much, Trev. I totally agree with you. I thought about TPKs and about the one that I had. Now, the TPK I was in, you know, the last Happling Standing, the campaign didn't go any farther. We just, okay, fine. It was a wash. Let's just boom. But with Fringeworthy, you can do that because you have people back at home and they'll realize that team didn't come back. So you can take a failure, you know, take a negative and turn into a positive, keep your whole campaign going, even if that particular story arc ended. So mission failure is not the end of your world. It just, okay, that particular thread ended. But I still have this entire campaign to work from, and you can do, what? what's the term? A spinoff campaign, so as it were. They died off because they went to Superflu Earth, and they all died within 24 hours of actually entering that planet from a Superflu. You're going to have a lot of characters dying in that world until they figure out not to go there or go in hazmat suits. That's where the GM has to come in and say, okay, they all died, but we've since then figured out this was the problem. So they don't keep making the same death. Well, right. You want to make it different. 
Well, with Fringeworthy, with the whole thing with the portals, that's good. If you get back within 24 hours, no more flu virus. And they realize, okay, it was a disease that took them out. We found their bodies more than a day's travel away from the portal. Okay, shut this portal down. You can find that out and move on and just lock the world off. If you're going to TPK or it happens, one of the things that our group has come up with is a set of rules for when somebody loses a character and they have to make up a new character. We actually reward them with extra experience points after each adventure until they get to a certain point. So it's faster and easier for them to catch up with the rest of us so that you know they're not always playing this guy who's way lower than everyone else. They basically start off... I can't remember how exactly how we're doing it because I haven't had one die yet, but one of the other guys did. But I think he started off a little bit higher than he would have as just a starting character. And I think it's based off of like 75% of the lowest character we have or something like that. And then he gets more experience points every adventure until he catches up with the lowest uh, experienced character. And then he earns experience as per normal. So what that does is it doesn't make you terrified or you don't feel like a a jerk if you lose your character because, well, now I'm going to have to play the lowest powered guy from here on out. You can catch up within a few number of adventures and you don't feel like the guy that everybody has to carry all the time. Right. You're a star and now you're a second banana. Right. Right. You can you can catch up. That's a system we use, and I like that. I, th- I think it's it's completely fair. I think it keeps people from being terrified from losing a character, and it keeps people from being discouraged from losing a character, which frees them up to play the character they want to the way they want to. You shouldn't be totally afraid to lose a character, because otherwise, where's the anxiety? Where's the, where's the challenge if you know you're not going to lose your character? you know, If you know the DM's going to let you live... Who cares then? I mean, what, what's the point of even playing? Occupational hazard of being a gamer. I mean, player, you you put a lot of investment into making that character. It's in a way like a kid. And Bruce and I are both parents, so we know this. And just oh, hey, I'm a parent too. I oh, that's right. Yes, I remember seeing the picture, Blix. I apologize. I'm a kid. Hard. What? <laughs> John's trying hard to make a kid. well the whole thing is that you invest a lot of time and effort not only into doing all the mechanics but you put in a lot of time into the fluff text of the character all of a sudden you know you gotta realize realistically going Mm -hmm. in that that character may die and i mean you don't want it to be disposable but you have to accept the fact that okay i may end up having to start rolling up a new character sometime yeah that that needs to be part of the expectation of the game occupational hazard and as a game master Let's say you put in this incredible story on this NPC, and he's not meant to be a victim, but you've got that one player that decides, okay, I'm going to shoot the archbishop in the head. Well, thank you very much there, pal. You just, you know, that character took me six weeks to make up, and you just blew him away. You got to realize that's part of the game. You're going to have to deal with the player that, pulls something out of the ether in order to you know to do in the game and you're like you know and just it is it occupational hazards the best way to describe when a character dies player or npc i also was one of the playtesters from our project every playtest was a tpk and so i got used to not actually having a character last more than one session i just got really good at making characters John's doing the happy dance at, woohoo, I made it to second level. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. However, a playtesting situation is different, okay, because that's where you're supposed to iron out these problems like constant TPKs, okay? To be honest with you, you know, we, we when we played the original Fringeworthy system, the, the actual comb-bound edition, well, I was the only person to ever make a character reach seventh level. <laughs> that was like bragging rights. You, you're not kidding. Right, right. I actually had a character survive to seventh level, and I'm the only one who ever had a character reach that level um, because the system was so brutal that people would get wasted left and right. Right, because and, you could shoot somebody right between the eyes and have a 99% <laughs> chance of them dropping dead no matter how many hit points they had. Right, right. Yeah. And and I just, I, you know, some of it was luck. Some of it was good role playing. Some of it was the cybernetics I managed to acquire early on. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, so, um, 
I guess, you know, the point matters. I've lost a lot of characters over the years, too, you know, so I, I just got used to it. And honestly, I, I'm really, I'm cool with losing a character. I'm cool with a character dying. The only thing I don't like, and it's the thing our group has remedied, is having to start over from scratch when everybody else is kick-ass. You know, I, I hate playing second wing forever. Right. And and with the system we've come up with, you know, where, where our characters can, can advance quick enough, that it doesn't seem like you're a second string character yeah. uh, forever. Right. It's worked out. We Jim, give uh, yeah. a ten percent bonus. Whoever is the lowest level character gets a ten percent bonus on any EPs that they get in, in our D twenty modern game. Uh, right. in, in my Saturday game that I that my daughter and I are in, our buddy Eric who runs it. Let's say all the characters are oh, ten to twelfth level. They'll say, okay, you're at, oh, ninth level. And with how experience runs in D20, you're going to catch up pretty quick. So it, that, the, the 10 to 20% for us isn't really a problem. And you end up getting back up to speed. But that, that again, is GM fiat. I'm, if you're running a 10th level campaign and you're going to say, okay, you've got to start out at first level, Anybody, any gamer with any experience is going to look and go, um, no, I call BS on this. I am not going to be, you know, patsy. You know, I'm not going to be the the meat shield on this. No, just and that's unfair to expect somebody to start back from beginning. I mean, you're going to maybe a level or two lower. And I, I found in like in Savage Worlds, when you hit seasoned, you're you're pretty good for most things. Uh, once you get up to hero level, then yeah, then you need to get, get them higher level. But yeah, you can actually usually start them up at season level, and they can catch up fairly quick at that. So it's but each system is different. Each system has different abilities. The main advantage in Tritech of being higher level is that you just have more skills, or your skills are higher level. That was the main the original Tritech rules. You got lots of extra skill points. Stats didn't go up. You didn't get. You weren't able to shoot any better, other than getting a little better skill. Starting at first level wasn't a big hindrance as as it would would be in other games. Hey, let, let, before we yeah. before we wrap this up, let's. Uh, I just want to touch on the the failing adventure. You know, sometimes you want to set up an adventure where the characters f- at least feel like they've failed. I mean, cause personally, from my experience, from watching the Star Wars saga, the first three movies, you know, Episode Four, Five, and Six. To me, Empire Strikes Back was the greatest movie of them all. As a matter of fact, as far as I'm concerned, for all of them, Empire Strikes Back is still the greatest. And if you consider it, Empire Strikes Back was really about the failures. All the characters had had pretty much had failures at the end of that movie. And if we translate that into our adventures, there are times when you had adventures for characters where they can't win. Where you set up an adventure where they need to fail to set up the next adventure where they get revenge or... They overcome or whatever. You know, you're trying to set up a big dramatic situation. So you're setting up an adventure where the characters cannot win. Uh, I'm just thinking we should discuss that just a little bit. Yeah. Well, well, you're establishing dr- dramatic tension. That's your mm-hmm. goal in that kind of an adventure. And as long as your players understand that, at least as a subtext, then you know it's they can have fun with it. You can say, "Look, I I really want you to get your mat on. I want you to feel you know come up with some justification for you guys to really go on a jihad against these bad guys." Or you're saying, "I'm you're establishing the big bad somewhere." You remember that tribe of people that you you were befriending and you were putting in a new well and stuff like that? Well, he just massacred them. Okay, and they're like, "Oh, you know." There's nothing better, more satisfying to me, either as player or as game master, as, yeah, you get trounced. You get the living tar whipped on you, and then you get your shot back. And I've seen players, we're talking standing up at the table, just full of just, you know, and vinegar, and they're they're rolling the dice, and the way they roll, they're darn near throwing them, because they (laughs) invested in pounding the villain into something resembling a wet prune. And I've done that where I've made villains where my players have been just wet hen mad because I've gotten the best of them at it. And then they came back and it was a great adventure. And we go back to losing a, a, a character you invest a lot of time and energy in. Well, ultimately, yeah, they're going to be beaten. But I mean, the things that the, these players did to this, and I mean, they weren't graphic and gross, but they had a lot of fun just mm-hmm. walloping this bad guy. 
And it's satisfying from a player's standpoint. It's satisfying from a game master's standpoint that, yeah, you failed. You messed up. Either bad dice roll or the GM, you know, just threw an adventure at you that you couldn't handle and you you, you limped away with your tail between your legs. But when that you come back and you go after that guy and you get him, the bad time is a learning experience. That's all. It's like, okay, mental yeah. note. Don't do that again. <laughs> so so do you, do you leave the, the players at the end of that session where they lost? Do you leave them in that lost zone or do you tell them that or do you inform them that, you know, hey, you know, you lost this time, but you have a chance to get back or, or do you let them stew on it? Well, I mean, if you want them to stew on it, that would be more for role playing. That would be more for along the lines of, OK, you want to have the characters or the players role play where they role play themselves out of that. And all of a sudden, let's say they go on an investigation and then they find out, oh, by the way, remember that guy that, you know, handed your your keister a couple weeks ago? He's doing something. And then all of a sudden the players start getting back into it like, oh, really? He's back? Oh, OK, I have something to say to him. And they go off after. <laughs> right. But right. also another way to do that, to, to get a player or get a character that, let's say, got, you know, his life handed to him, run an adventure that's a little lighthearted. That'll also get the player and the character to realize, yeah, you failed that your particular adventure. But for the character, life isn't all that bad. And for the player, you had fun again. The game wasn't so bad because you didn't get this particular mission. You dug the well for the village and you saved the people. Or you transplanted a population to a different part of a world that may have been dying that you came across in your fringe travels. And it makes the players feel good, makes the characters feel good, and then you get back into the normal yeah. realm of the campaign, whatever it may have been. The same type of adventure that got you into that one bad adventure. You know, the personal failures, they shape a person. They, they, they shape a character. And they'll always remember that one time where, okay, we had that one yeah. low point. I learned from it. I've moved on. It reminds me because I ran, I ran a mystery man game where it was I played over three, over three, over three, uh, three sessions, and yeah, they had the one where they they're finding out what's going on. Then they had they basically had their heads handed to them by the bad guy, and then on the third one, you're right. I mean, they just simply, you know. I just left it open. I say they'll they'll end it however they want to end it, and then there'll probably be a lot of ass kicking in the process. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's like in a movie. I mean, you see that one moment in a movie. I'll use for example Superman Two. You got the people of the Daily Planet, you know, getting slapped around by Zod and Luther, and there's Superman who already got you know beat up and everything. And he's flying outside the window and he looks and goes, General, would you care to step outside? Now, that player there, you know, he's had his failures. Now there's his chance to redeem himself. And it is. It, it's, again, part of the whole playing experience. You've had a guy who's hit a low point and he's redeeming himself by going back after the guys. That, and, yeah, vengeance, you know, it can be a nasty thing. But there are certain times in a game it can be fun because it's part of the roller coaster ride that you have as a gamer. Hey, look, in reality, vengeance feels good. We would not have that emotion if it didn't feel good. And it's best to act it out in a role-playing game than in real life. Because oh, yeah. in real life, vengeance is much more complicated than in a role-playing game. Agreed. So it's nice to be able to play characters who get screwed over by some villain or some, you know, whoever. And they get a chance to, to, to get some payback. And it, and it feels really good at the end of the night. You're just like, man, oh, yeah, I got that guy, that guy that screwed us over. So in essence, you know, sometimes it's good to throw a little failure on the characters, on the campaign to incite them to get that payback so that they feel good the next game. And like we've said, not every mission is going to succeed. It's just it, that's how they life shouldn't. Then it comes back to the whole Munchkin thing that was talked about earlier, where you're not going to be perfect every time. It, you know, these characters, even if they are Tazeel or Demixie or Slargs, they're still quote unquote human. They're not perfect. They're going to make mistakes. 
You redeem yourself, yep. fine. You've learned from the experience. So, uh, Bruce, do you want to? Um, did you want to mention anything about uh, losing your favorite NPC? Uh, but I don't see that as a failure. NPCs are there to be foils for the characters, unless like somebody goes and shoots them, and they're supposed to be giving you the the most important information. I see that more as a of a, a problem for the GM to handle uh, as part of his design. Okay, well, we can skip over. Let me just cut that. But out. you know, I, I do. I have seen situations where the characters have become very invested in an NPC. What happens to that NPC can really affect the players and affect their characters. And this is a gold mine for the GM because you know you you basically have somebody because you're making all the roles for that character. You know, and, and you would approve of this, Blix. You can that person can be put into harm's way and yet never really be ever in danger. Mm-hmm. And you can just use them as as a, a galvanizing prod to the characters. I mean, I've I've done that so so many times. I love that, but occasionally it will happen where the player, the character, will go and do something where there really isn't any good way for that that person to survive, and and that something bad is going to happen to that character because of what they did. All I can say is is that if the players are invested in that character, make sure that whatever happens is memorable. If they get killed by a, a bad guy, make sure you have some kind of an idea of how let you know let the players get payback. If they die and it seems to be for no good purpose, well, maybe they've got a son or a daughter that now the player the player characters are going to have to raise as as a kind of an obligation to them. You know, the water bearer who is has been so loyal and so so supportive, and he gets killed. You know, by a, a random hit or or even a, a, the 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 club of of, of the, the big ogre. Well, you know, you've got some obligations there, and uh, you know maybe you should step up and do that, and you should encourage the players to do that, and that turns a bad situation into an opportunity for, as you put it, uh, Trav, character development for oh, yeah. plot development. The, the big bad might still be out there, and now, and you might even get a chance to see that that new NPC grow into uh, somebody who can get payback uh, on a familial sense. The player characters would have to do that. You don't want the NPC doing it because then, you know, it's basically the player characters are the guest stars. That, that (laughs) kind of, uh, yeah. You you want the player characters to be there to help mold that NPC. Right. And they all go in together and just see that, that that's, back to the railroading again that's something you don't want to really do but yeah that that's true emotional investment in npc is something good for players because it helps them move along the campaign without railroading because you're feeding on that one thing which is part of all good science fiction the human element which fringeworthy has in train loads you know it, it because there's always some human element despite the race that appeals to the people that are exploring the fringe path. Have you ever done that where you had a reoccurring character who appeared oh. in portal after portal? <laughs> oh yes. Dimensional analogs. That's what I love about fringe worthy. You can run across the same guy several times. It's like, and you always tweak them a little that way. Right. You All can't, right. he's not the same guy. All right. I got to tell you, we, we have the greatest, our favorite, NPC ever. Um, I wrote him in my background. We we're doing a three by threes that we talked about. And one of the characters, we were playing in the pulp era. One of my characters that I wanted to have as a friend of, of my character was Jack Burton from Little Trouble, you know, Big yeah. Trouble in Little China. What a character. And he is the greatest freaking NPC we have ever had. He is awesome. It's been so much fun having him as an NPC. I don't think. The game master will ever allow him to die, and I think he's going to appear from here on out because he is just—he is so much fun to have around in the party. Right, these guys are great, you know. But as you said, Trav, the story is about the PCs, so we always make, have to make sure that you know that, that the the NPC can get some spotlight. That's fine, but ultimately, you know, the PCs are driving the action. Well, that—that's why Jack Burton makes such a great NPC because he really is a joke. You know what I mean? Like, as a person, he's a joke. But <laughs> Well, he was supposed to be an everyman kind of guy, and I think that's why the movie attained only a cult status, is because people are looking going, 
He's not incredibly powerful. He's not incredibly right. smart. He's not incredibly. He's an every guy. He's a Joe who just got dragged into a very weird circumstance, which is <laughs> he's mythology. And right. so it, that's why the movie didn't hit off as well as it did. I mean, we all love it now because it's a cult classic. But yeah, the NPC, if you have the chance to make an NPC that helps the game move along, that allows failures to be redeemed, you've got gold. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. And this is Trav. Remember, my show is the Travcast, hour three of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern on www.dementiaradio.org It's a comedy music show and I do a weekly piece on it every around 8.30 or so called the RPG Report. So I talk for about 10 minutes about some role-playing publication that's out and I review it and I offer my own viewpoints like I have here on this show just for the gamers that listen to the show. It's comedy music it's me and my friends. We sit and I play music and we shoot the breeze for about an hour. Listen in. If you want to hear more of me, be warned. On that show, I am not pod safe. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Games Incorporated.